you have a Bible, you can turn in your Old Testament to the book of Genesis. Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 through 34. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. At that time, Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal, deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. <coughs> when Abraham reproved, Abimelech, about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk plea in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. We continue in John the Baptist's ministry, mentioned last week, two weeks ago, how... Chapter 3 is divided between three interactions that John the Baptist has, between John the Baptist and the crowds, John the Baptist and the religious leaders, and then John the Baptist and Jesus. And we find this second episode in verses 7 through 12, John the Baptist and the religious leaders. Mind your attention, this is the word of God. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on his word. Our great God, uh, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. 
We ask that you would attend the reading and the preaching of your word by the gracious ministration of our great prophet who continues to make known your will for our salvation by extending the Holy Spirit who teaches and presses upon our hearts those blessings which he has won. These things are wonderful, O Lord, and are not within man's ability to bring to pass, but you bring them to pass. And so we ask that you would bring them to pass. For we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in God's providence, as we install a leader in the household of God, we come to a passage where leaders clash. (laughs) The false leaders and their false religion and a true leader who points to the true king. And so I'll make just three observations from the text as we consider shepherds, true and false. First, we'll mark the true shepherd's concern. Second, we'll mark the true shepherd's character. And third, we'll mark the true shepherd's king. Concern, character, and king. First, the true shepherd's concern. The shepherd's concern, in accord with the great shepherd's concern, is with the hearts of God's people. Look at verses 7 through 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious leaders among the people. They're two distinct groups with distinct beliefs and distinct practices. They disagreed famously on several things. If you can remember, this is uh, taken up in the gospel as they're disagreeing over the resurrection. The Sadducees denying the resurrection, the Pharisees believing it. But here, Matthew sees something unified about them as he presents them coming out to John's baptism. And as soon as John sees them, John rebukes them. He doesn't engage in a conversation with them. He doesn't talk to them. He just denounces them as bad leaders. False leaders with a false religion. And that's the basic rebuke that our Lord also gives them. So both John and the Lord Jesus rebuke the current religious leaders, the current state of religion in Israel. They both say, as religious leaders, you have perverted true religion. And in so doing, you destroy both yourselves and your hearers. John says, true religion is not what you think. It's not what you do. True religion is not ultimately about performing your rituals before man. It's not about your title and your status before man. True religion ultimately is about the state of the heart before God. True religion is a matter of the heart. And in this, John simply sets himself in that thick stream of the Old Testament prophets. 
The prophets were consistently indicting God's people for thinking that the main thing was the rituals, the song and dance in which they were engaged. John says, that's not the main thing. <laughs> You've mistaken the main thing. It seems to make the most sense of his words here. There's some question about what these religious leaders were doing there at John's baptism. Did they come out to spy on John? Did they come out to oppose John? Were they participating in John's baptism? It does seem like at least some were participating in the baptism. Because that's the very point that John addresses them on. What it means to truly participate in the baptism. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying, look, you're going to try and make this another iteration of you practicing your religion before men. You're going to make this another occasion for you to do your song and your dance so you don't fall in the esteem of the people. You're going to be willing to go through the motions here, but make no mistake about what true participation is. True participation is a matter of faith and repentance and turning from sin unto the one whom God sent for sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think we need to be careful here. I need to be careful lest we indict rituals and titles as we indict their abuses. We're not indicting rituals and titles as such. Notice that John baptizes. That's a ritual. John comes as a prophet. That's a title. These are deeply meaningful and significant rituals and titles. The point is not that these things are the problem. The point is that these things are not to become your ultimate confidence. Your ultimate confidence is the one who gives these things as blessings unto you to point your eyes to the one who alone can give forgiveness and life, blessing, and the blessings of the new covenant. To rest in these rights, to rest in these titles, to bandy these rights about, to bandy these titles about as evidence of your superiority. He says that is an abuse of true religion of the grossest magnitude. And that's what John calls them out on. He says, put no confidence in the flesh. You claim to be Abraham's children, but if you were really Abraham's children, you would have the faith that father Abraham has. He says, you're willing to perform your rights before men, but unless you bear fruit, you prove that you have no share in what these rituals signify and seal. In other words, he says, true religion is a matter of the heart. And you've made this about something else entirely. And in so doing, you prove yourself to be a false shepherd of a false religion. Today, we install another shepherd of the heart, or as the epistle to the Hebrews calls him, a watchman over your souls. And for this, we are rightly to begin rejoicing, but also praying 
praying for this shepherd, this watchman, along with the rest of the elders. All Christians are tempted to make religion a means to their own end. Because that was the corrupt heart that was on display here. Religion had become a way for them to advance their own ends of popularity. Influence. Wealth. Status. <laughs> to make religion a means to those end, ungodly gain, to use the language of Paul, is to corrupt true religion and to destroy both themselves and their followers. This is a temptation for every Christian, is it not? And it's certainly a temptation for leaders in the household of God. Now, thankfully, nobody becomes an OPC elder to gain wealth or influence. The surest way to become irrelevant. But it doesn't mean that the temptations won't be there in sneaking and unsuspecting ways, as the sins on display here fully persist, as we're all tempted to take a good gift and to employ it to a dark end. Mark what he's called to do. Mark what we are called to do as leaders. We're called to be concerned with your hearts. That's what Christ calls us to do. To be concerned with the state of your soul. I'm going to tell you right now, if we are not, who is? If we can't make those sorts of inquiries, who can? Mark that the devil, the enemy, loves to set up around God's gifts and set all sorts of barriers in place to keep us from availing ourselves of those good gifts. Sin caused Adam to hide, to shrink back from probing inquiries. First John tells us that we're going to gravitate towards the darkness. But blessing is in the light where the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins and we have fellowship with one another. Don't be surprised when our brother here takes up the task of truly being concerned with the state of your soul, truly being concerned with your spiritual health, your progress in the faith, your progress in grace and knowledge. For he has been commissioned to do this very thing by the one who is ultimately concerned with your soul. For he shed his blood to purchase it for himself. It's a weighty calling. Indeed, Paul says, who is sufficient for such things? For who can discern the heart? Who can accurately glimpse the state of the soul? And who has the courage? To speak words of life, even if they might give offense to the flesh. So we can consider next the shepherd's character, specifically the discernment and the courage that's necessary. There's a really strong contrast of images on display in this passage. The image of John preaching God's word boldly to the religious leaders 
and the religious leaders pictured as snakes slinking away from a threat. John is a true servant and speaks with courage. It takes courage to address people in high places. Make no mistake, these religious leaders were those in high places. They were the great ones of the land. They had wealth. They had status. They were revered. And yet John is influenced by none of those considerations. For his Lord shows no partiality. And John denounces them strongly. This is very strong language. You brood of vipers. That gets awfully close to what we might consider to be a curse word. <laughs> In many languages, some of the milder curse words are animal names. When I lived in Ukraine, if they called you a pig, not that I ever heard this firsthand, you knew that they weren't offering you a compliment. They called you a wolf. They weren't saying you are like White Fang, the great American hero. No, they were calling you something else entirely. So it is. In Scripture, animal names are frequently curses. And this particular animal has a particularly sordid history. Dragons. Vipers. He's not afraid to use strong language when the occasion calls for it. He says, you think you're offspring of blessing. You are not. You think you're offspring of Abraham. You are the offspring of another, a dreadful one. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a position where you have to say hard things to important people. Have you ever been in this commission position? It's not easy. And it's doubly difficult to do it out of actual courage and not contempt. It strikes me as easier to say hard things to people if you hold them in pure contempt. Cruelty and malice can generate a parody of courage. But to speak the truth in love, to do and to say these things out of a love for God and a love for truth and even a love for the one that you're addressing, who is sufficient for such things? Who can muster such a spirit? John's courage is not a human product. To be sent as a servant of the true and living God is a terrifying prospect. Children, do you remember what Moses said to God when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush and sent him to Pharaoh? What did he say? He said, please send someone else. Please send anyone else. Please don't send me. <laughs> Jeremiah says the exact same thing. Please. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the one. I'm not the guy. Anybody else is the guy. And it's not hard to see why. God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I'm sending you as my servant. I'm going to make you an iron wall against which the whole world is going to beat. He says, no one's going to like you, Jeremiah. They're all going to want to kill you, Jeremiah. No one's going to want to listen to what you have to say, Jeremiah. That sounds unpleasant. But what else does he tell him? He says, I'm going to be with you, Jeremiah. 
He doesn't tell them that these things are going to be pleasant. He's going to put him through a remarkable ordeal. But he promises to be with him. Jeremiah's courage and confidence is not a product of human character left to itself. It's a product of the power of God's promise seized upon by faith. That's the only thing that makes sense of what John is saying here. It's the only thing that makes sense of John being willing to say the things that he's saying. Even the blessings that John announces, the blessings that we continue to announce, they're met with rolled eyes, are they not? I come declaring a kingdom that you cannot seek. I come declaring a king that you cannot see. I come announcing the richest blessings that are not like the blessings of this world. Oh, and by the way, I come calling sin, sin. And telling you that you need to repent. And telling you that if you don't repent, God's wrath is being stored up against all those who persist in unrighteousness. Those are not popular things. They weren't popular then. They're not popular now. What would lead someone to stand up and to continue to declare that not only are these things true, but these things are of the utmost importance? A lunatic would embark upon this mission on their own. The only one who rightly walks down this absurd path where literally every word that comes out of their mouth threatens to offend somebody is if they're convinced that God actually sent them down that road and keeps them down that road. Even the choicest blessings that we announce are foolishness in the eyes of the world. But John is convinced. Shepherds are convinced, not of their own sufficiency, but of the truth of the promise and its abiding significance. But notice also that John speaks with discernment here. John doesn't speak the exact same word to everyone. This is a particular word to these particular people. John is an experimental preacher. That's old terminology. It just means that John preaches the same message about the kingdom and the call for repentance. But as he discerns hearts, he particularly addresses that message to the state and the season of the particular hearts that are hearing it. Calvin observes, John did not merely preach repentance in a general manner, but he also applied his discourse to individuals, judiciously inquiring when the season demands what and what belongs to each individual. In one sense, we all need the exact same word every week, don't we? We need the Lord Jesus Christ crucified in the stead of sinners. 
We need the resurrection power of Christ as that which conquers sin and death and spares from the wrath to come. We need the ascended Lord preached as the one who saves to the uttermost. We need the Lord returning as the source of our alone hope. But at the same time, we all need particular words, don't we? Mark, if your hearts aren't all in different seasons. Mark, if each faith in this congregation isn't in a stage of development that differs from one another. Some are weak and need strengthening. Some are haughty and need humbling. Some are straying and need retrieving. Some are weary and need refreshing. Some are hardening and need warning, and so on and so forth. Who is sufficient for these things? Not men. <laughs> and so we mark another area where you are called to pray for your elders. Lord, grant them the courage to speak your word. Grant them the wisdom to discern the states of souls. Grant me the humility to receive your word in whatever season you find me in. Pray for that humility now. Beg for that humility now. Because we all take that fifth vow to submit to the Lord and the government of the church, even if we are found delinquent in doctrine or life. But if it's in the midst of that delinquency, it comes with a derangement. Such that souls are precariously perched and that they refuse to hear the word of retrieval. Pray now for that humility. Plead now for the soul that receives the word as seed, yielding that crop of righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ's life was remarkable in this regard, in that he was constantly delivering perfect words perfectly discerning the hearts of those to whom he addressed. He only ever spoke fittingly, often gentle, sometimes stern, rarely but significantly in wrath. And at the end of the day, elders are his servants, speaking not their word, but the Lord's word. And so we consider last the shepherd's king. John makes much of the one who comes after him. He compares himself unfavorably in terms of both worth and power. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There was a certain arrogance that began to characterize the religious leaders. God's people need me. They're lost without me. Who will instruct them about all of these rituals? Who will tell them which commandment is more and which commandment is less important? I, I alone can lead them into the kingdom. John's spirit here is an alternative spirit, to say the least. 
especially considering what the Lord Jesus Christ declared of John, that not one born among women is greater than John, and yet John himself says, I am not worthy to hold the sandal of the one who's coming after me. Two very different spirits, are they not? I am indispensable to God and his purposes. I'm not worthy to be considered a sandal bearer in the kingdom of the beloved son. The shepherd makes much of the true shepherd. Leaders make much of the true king. All Christians are invited to stand in awe that he takes any of us as his servants, given what we know about our own faithfulness and worth. And that's the posture that's most fitting in adoration at his feet, saying that you would think upon me as a servant, O Lord, is a wonder the likes of which I cannot get my mind around. And it's in that position of lowliness that the Lord Jesus Christ actually stoops and says, yes, servants, but even more, brothers, <laughs> friends. But we do not exalt ourselves to that position, do we? The parable of the fool who places himself in the position of honor, and then the king comes and says, no, no, you've got it wrong. You deserve to be by the door. Versus the wisdom of sitting by the door, and then the kingdom comes and says, friend, you deserve this other seat. Come, take it. It's a heart on display here with John. And these false leaders, false leaders exalt themselves. True leaders exalt the only one who's inherently and absolutely worthy of exaltation, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a sober evaluation. That's what John says when he contrasts his own power and efficacy and the one who is mightier. An interesting word. He doesn't say greater. He says mightier. The one coming after me is mightier than I. He says he possesses a power and an efficacy that I can't even fathom. I baptize you with water. I preach repentance. I stand up here. I declare God's word. I set forth the visible word. But there's only one that can bring about the blessings that these words present. And it's this one that John points to. When he says there's one coming who baptizes in the spirit and in fire, who gathers his grain and separates the chaff, it's the new covenant blessings that John is evoking there, set forth in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the choicest blessings of a people purified by the blood of Christ, of a people gathered in safety in the barn of the Son, of the chaff actually driven out so that God's people endure forever, unmolested by the unrighteous. Who can bring those things to pass? John says there's only one. And it's not me. And that's good news for us, brothers and sisters. For it means that your security, my security, is not ultimately in my hands. 
not ultimately in the hands of the elders that God is pleased to put in place to work his purposes. Your security, my security, isn't in Chris's hands or Randy's hands or Dan's hands. They're in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gathers his grain into his barn continues to drive out chaff as the gospel is presented and people are driven away who alone can gather in the elect who alone can preserve them unto the end who alone can bring to pass faith and repentance and hope and love and fruit adorning the gospel of our salvation the Lord Jesus Christ alone, who is pleased to do such things to the glory of his Father and the praise of his glorious grace. We mark God's gift this day in another elder being raised up to care for the flock. But it is a most fitting occasion to mark the one from whom every blessing flows. The Lord Jesus Christ as the one who secures his sheep at the cost of his precious blood. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, gracious Father, bless this word unto us, O Lord, that we may bear fruit as we look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.